These days, a lot of us listen to music through streaming services. These services promise an individualized experience with algorithms personalizing our playlists. But not too long ago, we were all tuning into a soundtrack that was collective. Broadcast radio. Power 106, where hip-hop lives. We heard it pouring out of car windows and corner stores. It was a really different kind of soundtrack to our lives. Today, we'll hear from Wired senior writer Jason Parham. Jason will take us on a journey that starts with his 1990s childhood in Los Angeles and leads him to a DJ in France who maintains an archive on YouTube. Uh, Disco, soul, funk, hip-hop. And then to cultural critic Jace Clayton in New York City. A DJ set is a sort of narrated archive. It's a personal story that gets at the role of music, especially music on the radio, and how it shapes our memories of history and culture in this moment of always changing technology. This is Get Wired, and I'm your host, Lauren Good. And now I'll hand it off to Wired's Jason Parham. The early June air is electric with change. A hot rising fury moves through the streets. From my fire escape in Brooklyn, I watch as demonstrators march by chanting, I can't breathe, chanting, no more black blood in these streets. I feel it too. I'm upset. I'm enraged. I'm exhausted. It's a familiar feeling, one I know. I've been here before. When the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery spurred the nation and parts of the world into action this past summer, I wanted to ground myself. I wanted to remember that I, that we as a people, had survived something like this before. I'm a child of rebellion. I know something of history's violent fires and how they spread. So I ended up on YouTube one afternoon, searching for local radio programs from the late spring of 92, when the rage of Black Los Angeles hit a tipping point. Demonstrators now toe-to-toe with the police officers. It's an all-too-familiar story. A Black man is pulled over by the cops and unjustly assaulted. That happened to Rodney King. He was lying face down, spread out, and uh, when he was in that position, then they started hitting him. In 1991, a bystander filmed four white police officers beating King within an inch of his life during a routine traffic stop. The following year, the police were acquitted. The verdict opened old wounds and long simmering racial divisions in Los Angeles. I was six when the riots engulfed my neighborhood and much of South LA. Those days, much like these summer days, were full of smoke and apocalypse and the constant shriek of police sirens. It would be years before the images in my mind from those days as a child clicked with my adult understanding of racism and power in the city where I grew up. Difficult times sent us on journeys of personal meaning. They ask us to look within. This is true in almost every case and on every scale, but it was especially relevant to the kind of collective uprisings that converged in the streets across Main Street America this summer. I wanted to situate our current turbulence by reminding myself that I had already journeyed across this volatile land. The radio recordings from that time, I thought, would help. They would be my assurance. We were here before, and we would make it through again. Not long after the world spiraled into crisis, I went searching for the radio shows that aired during the week of the riots. I was curious, what songs were being played back then, at that exact moment in time? What were people calling in and talking about? Were Angelinos upset? confused or galvanized by all that was happening around them. I listened for the echo of my past. 
In the end, I came up short. I never filmed those broadcasts from the week of riots. What I found instead was a realm, a place way more expansive than the one I went looking for. I found a door to the past that spread out in every direction. What I discovered was an archive on YouTube of radio broadcast. The archive held shows from L.A. and all over the world. They were all from the 1980s and 90s. It was nostalgia and surround sound. I was raised on the radio, pulled in by the pulsing beats and layered harmonies. Growing up in Los Angeles in the 90s, the radio was my lifeline to the larger city and community. We didn't have cable in our house, which meant no MTV, no BET, and definitely no HBO. So I tuned into the radio every chance I got. During morning car rides to school in my mom's cedar brown minivan, at home when the afternoon spread out on my bedroom floor with the volume on blast. Later, sometime around junior high, I got a Sony Walkman with radio function. I was plugged in nonstop. Remember, this was pre-social media, before Instagram and Twitter and TikTok controlled our attention. For me and for other people during this era, the radio was a kind of cultural marketplace, the town square. It's where I listen to the latest songs by West Coast legends like DJ Quick and Ice Cube. Every time Dr. Dre's Nothing But a G Thing would come on, it was like a shot of adrenaline. The booming bass, the traces of G-Funk, the puffed up bravado of Dre's and Snoop Dogg's lyrics. One, two... But it was also a place where I could hear the concerns of the black community, my community. Callers looking for life advice. People just looking to talk about their day. Chris, what you doing? Then watch TV. And? So when I stumbled on a YouTube channel of old school radio shows, I was giddy with anticipation of what I might hear, of where this archive of programs might take me. It seemed like there was a bit of everything to get lost in. A BBC broadcast of the Tim Westwood rap show from 96. A 97 taping of Caleb's iconic afternoon hour on LA's 107.5. Listening to a 1988 recording of New York After Dark with Yvonne Mobley. It feels like I'm riding in a time machine. I'm instantly transported when I hear the velvet smooth harmonies on The Last Time by the soul funk band Imagination. With everything that's happening today... The world feels upside down. I find solace in those same programs that were my safe harbors as a kid. I did what any of us would do. I turned up the volume. I let the music guide me. And then I went looking for the person behind the archive. I wanted to know what was motivating him to do this, pouring so much time into this corner of the internet. I dug around, and I found out it was created in 2015 by a Frenchman and former radio DJ named Jean-Gabriel Pratt. Why I love music? The emotion. Yes, the emotion. Pratt is 55 and lives in Sausson, one of the oldest towns in France. He told me restoring snippets of old radio is an act of remembrance, of ushering what was into what is. For him, doing so comes from need to safeguard those small but precious histories that are easily forgotten. Like me... Pratt's grew up around music. It was everywhere and eclectic. His dad constantly played vinyl records in the house, and his mother loved watching variety shows on TV. There are many music. <laughs> music of movie, music for dance, just music for listen. There are, there are many music. Pratt eventually flipped his love of music into a career. In the 1980s, he worked as a DJ for a Paris radio station, helping introduce the underground sounds of New York City to Paris locals. 
He was mesmerized by the pulse of hip-hop and electronic music. DJs like Tony Humphreys and the Cool Red Alert were his blueprint. DJ Red Alert is blowing it up. And though Press had a deep love for music and radio, he couldn't make it work full-time. It didn't pay enough for him to get by. So today he works as an aircraft manager. But he moonlights back in the world he loves, archiving 1980s and 90s broadcast radio. Pratt's is part of a larger network of radio enthusiasts on the internet. They preserve and safeguard old-school broadcasts of varying genres. They all find each other and share scans in Facebook groups. Pratt's also digitizes old cassettes he saved from his time on the air. I have to digitize uh, all my tape. I can to see you, if you will. One minute. Um, this is a uh, broadcast hip-hop from French. This is step of um, Los Angeles in, in 1997. Press Endeavor made me think about the role of memory in my own life and the importance of how we hold on to the past. What is the function of memory in the future we're trying to build? Does it have a place? The only requirement of genuine, bone-deep transformation, the kind our world so desperately needs, is that we adapt, that we grow, that we architect ourselves in fantastic shapes. It asks that we rid the old ways for new ones. But surely not everything needs to be thrown away or forgotten. For the radio broadcast, it's a, it's a memory. In his own small way, what Pratt's is doing is answering that call. He's inviting us to slow down, to take a breath, and to look back again and again. He's carving out a place where I can remember. And in remembering, I find stable ground. I'm reminded that I can survive the future we're moving toward. Pratt's is all the way in France. I'm based in New York City, but the music binds us. Listening to his archive of radio shows, the memories flood in, running across the playground at Perrin Elementary School, the smell of my mother's cooking wafting through the house. Joy begins to rise, and I'm at peace. I feel at home. So I sift through Pratt's archive. I turn the volume louder, louder, louder. And it's there, in the rattling bass and rich melodies, that I listen for my younger self. Remember way back then when it was 1985 all the way live I think I was about 10 One of those That was Jason Parham senior writer at Wired After discovering the YouTube archive he reached out to DJ and cultural critic Jace Clayton also known as DJ Rupture They talk about radio and archives and how the move from analog to digital has changed our relationship to music and to memory That's right after this quick break so stay with us Welcome back to Get Wired. So after he found the YouTube archivist in France, Jason's journey took him to Jace Clayton. Jace is a DJ whose track, NTS Mix, you're listening to right now. He's also a cultural critic who's traveled all around the world studying how sound and memory and public space interact. He wrote the book Uproot, Travels in 21st Century Music and Digital Culture. So Jason, you've been following Jace for a while now. Right. So Jace is a longtime figure in the New York music scene. He's DJed all over the globe. Um, his book from 2016, Uproot, it talks about how music connects us across borders and how music is teaching us to remember and re-remember in different ways, in new ways, really, and how music itself functions as an archive. 
And you're telling a pretty personal story here. So I'm wondering if there was something that you were looking for from Jace that would give you answers in some way. You know, Jace is really big on this idea of archive and survive. I was interested in digging into that and how it was related to what was happening this summer, you know, with the protests and the movement for Black Lives. And I was interested in the ways he could help me figure out different pathways into my own path through music, right? So I came up in L.A. during the 92 riots. And I think that's what really what a lot of his work does. He's teaching us to look back and showing how music can be a conduit for that. All right, let's get to your interview. Jace, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Jason. There's so much I want to talk to you about today, you know, with everything that's been happening in the world. These days, you know, I seem to be taking extra solace in the music that's around me. You know, bumping Kitranada, Kamaya, Thundercat. And all of this got me thinking about this really beautiful passage from your book. You write, Some artists send shockwaves forward, influencing contemporaries and swaying trends. Others reach back and reconfigure how we hear and understand music made years before. A great song becomes a memory palace with room for everybody. Talk to me about music as a form of memory. I say this memory palace because so much of how like we sort of imprint meaning on music is bound up in where we were when we first heard it, what we were doing, you know, the summer that that one song filled the air. And so the idea that a song is just like a discrete artistic endeavor is fine, but the way it sort of takes root in a culture and actually kind of acquires that that heft, you know, and sneaks its way into the soul, that's always linked to both personal memories, but then especially, you know, the beauty of pop is that those personal memories sort of coagulate and condense into something that's collective. And that is really this way of kind of accessing something greater than just this individual instance. So we live in an age when a lot of people would rather look forward than back. Recently, I talked to this guy in France named Jean-Gabriel Prats, who posts vintage radio programs on YouTube. Why are archives important, and specifically as they pertain to music and music history? So much of what we love about music, oftentimes I can say the innovators are kind of on the, the margins of the scene, or the innovators aren't necessarily the ones who make it big and make it famous. So at a basic level of sort of musical history, that's just this helpful awareness of like, oh, what did come first? Who started this trend? And sort of giving credit where credit's due. And the archive thing, it's really foregrounded in music because music, first of all, permutates through all the different media selections, you know, from old vinyl to CDs to MP3s to just streams now. And there's this whole all these different cultures of collecting around it where people try and put together and assemble their personal archive of music. So it's it's one of these rare instances of an art form where the regular kind of everyday person will actually have some sort of store of their own root through what they've loved and what's moved them. So do you look at archiving as an art form? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's great to actually look at, say, like a DJ's record collection, because you get to see what they were vibing with in that particular zone. And of course, you know, we love libraries and libraries have sort of standardized systems. But I absolutely adore the kind of personalized, quirky archives where someone's following their passion. And not only that, but pulling it together with a logic that is deeply idiosyncratic and all their own. So in that sense, absolutely an art form. For me, archives get at the larger concept of power, right? This idea of those that record history control who, how, and what we remember. Absolutely. The brute example of that, it's like, well, look at the colonial encounter in the Americas. You can think of it as many things, but one of the things, it's different concepts of time. 
Like what calendar system won in 1492? You know, how would things be different if we were living within the indigenous calendar? Which is just to say, even the very notion of a timeline is itself loaded with these very forceful histories of power, who won, who had the weapons, who could write it down. An unbelievably mundane version of that is when I look at my own output as a DJ, for example, I put out all these mixtapes and nowadays they're harder to find than they ever were because places like YouTube and SoundCloud have algorithmic sample sniffers. So whereas once it was easy for my MP3s to circulate and go out into the world, bounce around, influence people, now the main repositories for, you know, sort of sample-based or mixing-based music culture often have these filters, meaning that entire scenes simply can't make that transition to these digital archives because YouTube defaults to be a kind of archive on, for better and for worse. So it's this situation where, I mean, archive and survive really is true, especially if we're talking about rapidly changing musical forms. So your book Uproot follows you as you traverse the globe, Mexico, Morocco, Lebanon, uncovering all the ways music travels across borders, and really the technologies being used to expand its reach. In your travels, how is music being digitally safeguarded or preserved? One of the most striking examples of that just sort of digital archiving of music was in Lebanon. And there I had the opportunity to spend time with two different groups. One was this group, Foundation for Arabic Archiving and Research, almost like a music archiving think tank up in the mountains outside of Beirut, dedicated to preserving the the roots of recorded history of Arabic music. And this is, you know, it's pristine. They're doing careful cleaning and restoration of the records themselves. So it's everything a sort of record obsessive would want. Context, history, almost a scientific approach to, to maintenance and dissemination of the information. But just a couple miles away, I was spending time in a basically a Palestinian refugee camp. And there I was asking the same questions, like, how do you hold on to music that's important to you? And it was the complete opposite of Amar, which is to say, it was a bunch of guys with um, desktop PCs and just stacks and stacks of MP3s and digital files on them, poorly labeled, jumbled up metadata, you know, burning me CDs, transcoding the audio. So it's constantly degraded and the sound quality is going out the window. And I was like, this is the version without a lot of resources. There is still this very fundamental impulse to like, this is music that represents our idea of Palestine, our idea of the sort of national music heritage. That's interesting. That example is sort of the magic of it seems to purely come from the sharing of it. It's them sort of saying, this is our music and this is what represents us whether it's high quality or low, you know, the preservation happens and passing it on. Very much so, yes. That's to me like a basic fact of music. If you love it, you bring it to life by sharing it, by putting it into circulation and by having it sort of create conversations and vibes all over. Were any of these methods particularly surprising to you in the way that people were archiving or sharing music? One I was just actually talking about last week with a friend, blew my mind. So it's young Mexican cumbia producers. What they do is they've got WhatsApp groups where they share uh, sample libraries. It's four folders. One will be like voices. One is beats. And one is, you know, sound effects. But it's 
basically they're sharing the roots of how to make sample-based cumbia. So it'll be like a strange loop of a hip-hop song, a strange loop of a 1970s Colombian cumbia, all these sort of um, the building blocks of sample-based music. It kind of blew my mind. They're sharing the ingredients. You know, this is what comes before a song. These are fragments of songs and weird little voices these creators have put together. And then they're putting it out in these WhatsApp groups. Private, but the whole idea is that this is explicitly music as conversation. So music was at the center of these conversations. Were the producers in the WhatsApp groups talking about their lives beyond music too? Yes, I think it's always it's always the case, you know, suddenly there's a guy who, you know, it's like he works in a factory during the day and makes this at night. So then he talks about his job and it always spirals out. It's like the pre-political power of music. If you have a sound that's strong enough to get people gathered together and passionate about something, inevitably the conversation is going to expand. Would you say the rise of social media, which is so central to our lives now, sort of has changed our relationship to broadcast radio? Yeah, it has completely disrupted it and supplanted and replaced it. Yes, radio still persists in some way, but I grew up on radio and I barely listen to it nowadays, for example. And I lament its loss, even though it's still there. Radio is one transmitter and a thousand receivers. It's like, this is a sort of totalitarian structure, you know? <laughs> Social media is like user to user, peer to peer, anything can... So uh, on the surface, it sh- social media should make things better, but I don't think that's the case, actually. So much of the magic of radio does fall back into, oh, I could hear a song driving, passing me in a car in the street and then turn the corner and go into a shop and that song is still playing. So this idea that radio could sort of blanket a community, a region, a corner of your neighborhood with this very specific contextual conversation um, that's open in a way, that is actually very beautiful and very rare as it turns out. Because I think with social media, it's so easy to fall into a wormhole and maybe it's an algorithmically focused wormhole. Maybe it's just a wormhole of these are your 16 friends. This is this echo chamber, but it lacks the beautiful randomness that radio allows for as well. One thing Jean Gabriel, the guy who created this radio archive on YouTube mentioned was how companies spend a fortune to protect and preserve film and TV. You know, think Netflix, think the Criterion channel, but radio isn't afforded the same care or currency. I think that the main reason has to do with copyright issues, that it can just be complicated to, to like, what does it mean to store sort of copywritten songs? But then even my own, like I grew up taping the radio and I treasure those tapes now more than ever because you get the strange ads, the DJ banter, the moments where people are talking about the weather. I mean, we tend to not value that sort of every day around us, you know, like the menus at restaurants. I've got a few friends who collect restaurant menus. And even that's amazing. Like five years later, I look at them or 20 years later, you're like, this is what people were eating, <laughs> you know, in 1984 in Baltimore. This is kind of incredible. But this idea that the stuff of the everyday, it feels easy to throw away. And radio, what could feel more like the stuff of every day? You know, you turn it on for free. It's there. It vanishes into the air. You know, people say radio has died. Has it? Or has it just evolved into something else? Is radio dead? <laughs> I think, let's say it's, um, it's in terminal care. I, I guess I think of the, what are the fundamentals of radio? And so that first off, it's free access. 
hugely important. But this idea that there's something, a personality um, or a team of personalities who can bring us together in a shared moment through sound and somehow speak to the community and offer, again, personal insights, but then as part of a wider conversation, that's like a democratic goal. That's something to work towards. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the radio announcer. Radio announcers are often very conservative and will have their posts for 30 years. The figure of the DJ to me is very similar to this figure of like what a good radio host can do and what a good radio show can do. Provide a kind of counter memory, provide a kind of rally call. But I always go back to the fact that radios, it's there if you're interested in it. It's free and available to anyone, but all you have to do is care. And that's like such a beautiful (laughs) way to think about access. I'm curious, how do you see your work as a DJ fitting into this larger archiving and sharing and passing on of music? Mm. It's funny, when I first started DJing, I was just like, these are the sounds I hear in my head. I want to like use these records to stitch them together and like put them out into the world. You know, just like, rah, you want to break everything. DJ rupture. Whereas now I'm like, oh yes, each of these mixes I did is a kind of it's a tiny archive but it's a saying these are the corners of musical history i'm going to take you through these are some completely obscure artists that i know like fans are going to search out and seek for and then start to listen to a bit more because i've presented them this way so as i went along i kind of realized the the responsibility of knowing that people would delve into the track lists and so suddenly what went from being a purely almost like aesthetic pursuit on my end that continued but with this growing awareness of the dj set is um, a sort of narrated archive thanks again jace this was fantastic great thank you jason that's it for this episode of get wired get wired is hosted by me lauren good you can follow me on twitter at lauren good This episode was reported by Jason Parham. And you can follow Jason on Twitter at NonLinearNotes. Thanks to Jean-Gabriel Prats and Jace Clayton for coming on the show. This episode was produced by Anna Stitt, with additional production help from Mickey Capper and Alex Jerome. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannes Brown. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Nina Gensler-Debs and Sarah Fallon edited this episode. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Scott Rosenfield is Wired site director, and our editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson. You can find out more about the Get Wired podcast at wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week.